Good morning. How's everybody doing? Come grab a seat. Get your coffee. Get a donut. Find your table. If you are new with us this morning, uh, we are towards the tail end of the study, but we always are glad for visitors to be here. We'll be meeting this week and then next week, uh, and then next week will be our last week together. But if you are new, please see Pat or Elaine at the front, uh, and they can get you connected to a table. Uh, As we begin, uh, we've got a a very important announcement. Again, um, don't make me pray and then make everybody be quiet. I'll do it. All right. you guys know that we, we don't make lots of announcements here, uh, but when we do, uh, it's because they're very important. Uh, thank you. Uh, that is uh, very much on purpose, uh, and we guard that very, very tightly, but when there are announcements, they're important, important enough to where, you know, chatter, I actually don't even give them. Uh, we, had, we had Michael, or, or, you know, didn't hear a few weeks ago talk about Harvey Leaf. Well, Pat is going to talk about something that's very, very important. Uh, for us uh, as a church, and particularly for us as men, an opportunity um, in our church that's going to be starting here shortly. So I'm going to turn over to Pat for just a few minutes, and then we'll get uh, started with Psalm 46. Counseling and care. And uh, that means I do about 18 to 20 hours a week of counseling, and I get the privilege of meeting with people of all ages Uh, Married couples, young adults, senior adults, everything. And one of the things that, I'm 61, um, one of the things that I run across on a very frequent basis is the issue of sexual sin. Um, We can call it simply pornography, but it has much more far-reaching tentacles than just that. And at 61, uh, probably my first uh, orientation or exposure to pornography was probably around 14. Thanks be to God in my life, I had very limited exposure. It's never been an issue in my life. There are some of you guys in here today, if you're 40 and under probably, your first exposure was anywhere from 8 to 12 years old. The result of that is, is that for some of you in here, you've got a demon inside of you. And what I mean by that is not literally, but you've got an addiction that you've been battling with and it has stayed completely underground. And I get to hear those stories in my counseling office. I hear them in other places. Redemption Groups is a funnel that people have been coming out of and that for the first time they've been willing to talk about their struggle with pornography. Reengage is another funnel that's coming out of that, that we are finally having men who are saying, you know, I've got a problem, and um, I need help. Gentlemen, I'd like to believe that this Tuesday morning study is another funnel as well, that the teachings you've been hearing on discipline this time, and as we've gone through this study, and as we've gone through all the previous studies, that there are people in here today, and numerically, guys, there are a bunch of you in here who are struggling. And to that end, there is a study that I'm going to be starting next fall, excuse me, next spring, the little blue card on the table, and I'm going to ask every single person to pick up one. Here's the reason why, is because the stigma is such that if you reach out and pull up a card, somebody's going to say, oh, he's got a problem. You laugh, it's true. Some of you will be hesitant to talk to me after the study today for fear that other people will go, 
Why is he talking to Pat? I, I'm, I, you think I'm exaggerating. I'm dead serious, and it breaks my heart. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is take this, even if it's not for you, maybe there's somebody you know that needs this. And it's a 14-week study. It's going to go from 7 to 8.30 p.m. on Thursday evenings. If there is a large enough group here that wants to do something on Thursday mornings, I'm willing to start a group for that as well. What I want you to know is I speak for myself, Paul, and Chad, and the leadership of the church. This is an issue that we have got to start dealing with in this church, and we've got to start now. I'm telling you, it creates problems in marriage. It creates problems in all relationships. And there are some of you in here today that have said 50 to anywhere to 1,050 times, this is the last time. This is the last time. I'm no miracle worker. The curriculum we're going to be looking at is no miracle content. It's biblically based. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Please take this card. If you need help, contact me. My contact information is on the card. If you know somebody that might be interested in it, please take that with them. Thank you, gentlemen. You know, um, a lot of weeks we dive right in, and I know with that topic we're diving right in. And one of the things that as we think about the spiritual disciplines um, as men, that would certainly go with... um, the discipline of putting sin to death, is that at the center of all of these is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his sovereign work on the cross for you and for me that has set us free. We want to begin to see that the gospel touches every issue of life, every issue, every issue. But we have to be willing to begin to talk about some of those issues that we don't want to know anybody else um, knows that we're struggling with. And so it might be something like a sexual sin. It could be something else as well. But we want so badly for all of us, and that includes me and every elder of our church, to see that the gospel really does set us free from every sin and speaks to every issue. All right, so Psalm 46, I want you to look at your sheet. As I said, we're meeting this week, and then next week we'll meet uh, for our last time. Next week we'll have uh, Ligon Duncan with us um, to close us out in Psalm 23. He is the president, or maybe even chancellor, I think is maybe his title, of Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, And he will be with us uh, to offer Psalm 23, so don't miss out on that. Now we're talking about Psalm 46. Psalm 46. So let me pray and we'll dive right in. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be with us now. Focus our hearts and minds on your word, that your word would do um, what you have given it to us to do, that it would pierce us through, uh, that it would um, pierce through those callous parts of our hearts, that it would expose our vulnerability, our dependence, our utter lack of control but in that place that we would be confronted with your sovereignty, with your goodness, with your mercy, with your care, and with the good news that you are in control of all things. 
May we, we meet you here, no less than that this morning. May we meet you here, encounter you here, God, as we read your word together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 46. Um, here's how, how I want to begin. Today, uh, if I were to ask you, and I just did this with some of our men, uh, how's it going? How are you doing? How are things at work? Uh, there's basically three categories. Um, there is uh, things are good, things are bad, but there's a new category that perhaps you have said or heard other people say, and I'm not sure if it's good or bad, and, and the word is busy. You ever said that before? Hey, how are things going at work? Oh, they're really busy. Okay, is that good or bad? And typically the way that people respond to that is kind of good. Like, well, I'm glad. I mean, better than being not busy, right? But as we begin to think about what life is like for us, particularly living in a big city like Dallas, not just with work, but with every activity that we fill our schedules with, the reality is, is most of us live very active, very busy lives. And there's a part of that that we hate, if we're honest, right? The part of us saying, well, we're really busy is, well, it's, there's just a lot going on. But there's also a part of a, that busyness that we actually secretly want, that we're actually trying to fill our calendars and our schedules with activity and stuff to do. Why? A New York, op-ed, uh, New York Times op-ed article, this is about five years ago, called The Busy Trap. This is uh, how it put it, and this is so good because I think it's just so true. Every once in a while you read an article, read, read a book that you think just really nails human experience. This is one of them. He says, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. I'm busy, so busy, crazy busy. It is pretty obviously, and I love this, a boast disguised as a complaint. So when you say, well, I'm busy, he's saying you're bragging and you're making it look like you're complaining though. But deep down, you're kind of proud of it. You're, you're proud that you're busy. And the stock response, he goes on to say, is a kind of congratulation. Well, that's a good problem to have, or, well, it's better than the opposite. You ever said that to somebody? How are you doing? I'm busy. Oh, that's a, that's a good problem to have. But then he goes on. So he doesn't just nail, okay, this is a, something we all experience. Then he goes on to explain why. And I want you to listen to this. Again, New York Times op-ed. He, he says this. He says, the present hysteria is not a necessary or inevitable condition of life. It's something that we have chosen. Busyness serves as an existential reassurance. It's a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be trivial or meaningless if you are busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Okay, what's he talking about? He's saying, we've chosen our busyness. And the reason is, is we hate the idea of being still, of having nothing to do. Because when we are still, we are confronted with our humanity, our lack of control, our emptiness. And so we use our calendars and our schedules as a hedge against that to try to find some kind of meaning that there's an almost an illusion of being in control or having it all together the more filled our calendars become. 
Okay, that's one side of the coin. The other side is this. There's a guy named Neri All. He um, wrote a book called Hooked. He is a consultant in Silicon Valley. And what he does is helps co companies that develop uh, devices just like this or websites like Facebook and Twitter on how to make them habit-forming. In other words, intentionally make them habit-forming. That this is no accident. In fact, this is what he says. He says this as much. He says, the technologies we have have turned into compulsions, if not full-fledged addictions. The impulse to check a message notification, to go to YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter for just a few minutes, only to find yourself still tapping and scrolling an hour, an hour later. He says, none of this is an accident. It's all just as the designers intended. And they use psychology. And get this, this is what he says, inner triggers... Feelings of, quote, boredom, loneliness, frustration, and confusion that instigate a slight pain or irritation prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. In other words, they're specifically going after those places when we feel irritable, discontent, bored, that we would fill that space with checking our email, going to our inbox, Checking the score. Right now, checking to see what coach is going to be now the new head coach of your college football team. Constantly. Why? Because we hate being still. We hate being silent. We want to constantly fill everything that we have with just noise and stuff. Why? What do these two things have in common? When we are still, when we are silent, we are confronted with one reality that we hate, that we are not in control, that we are exposed as the broken, dependent human beings that we are, and we are not in control. And the question before us this morning is, could that actually be a good thing? That perhaps it's actually the best thing for your soul to daily recognize that you are not in control because there is one who is. The God of the universe, the God who made creation, the God who made everything, the God who sent his son to die on the cross for you, he is in control. If we would only stop our striving, stop our busyness, stop all of the noise, and to be still and silent before him and recognize that he is God. Very quickly, I want to look at this in just a few ways and then send you to your tables to talk about this. The first is this. Psalm 46 is going to call us to be still. Verse 10 is probably the most per famous part of the psalm, that we are to be still and know that he is God. But more than just that verse, you'll notice something after each uh, stanza or each verse. Uh, at, you'll look at verse 0. It's on your page. It says, to the choir master. This is meant to be sung in a choir. And there's three sections or three verses to this song. After each section or each verse, there's the word Selah. Now, what we know about this word, which is very little now, this ancient Hebrew instruction finds its way into the Psalms. It's, it's a musical instruction. It's a liturgical device. It simply means this, stop and listen. Stop and listen. In other words, we've just sung a verse of a song. Now, stop. Don't just go on and sing the next verse, but stop and listen. Pause. Be still. Be silent and listen to what God has to say to you. 
Brothers, this is what we need, perhaps now more than ever in our lives. That not just reading the Bible, prayer, all the spiritual disciplines, we need to cultivate the discipline of being still, of being silent. Because only when we are still before the Lord, silent before the Lord, are we truly confronted with the reality that we are not in control and that he is. And we see this control three ways in Psalm 46. The first way I want to see is this. He's in control over creation. Look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Okay, You see this kind of language throughout the Psalms. The occasion for this psalm, not so different than many others, that the psalmist recognizes that there is great trouble all around him, great conflict. And he recognizes that God is the one in the midst of all of this chaos God is still in control. How does he know? Look at verse 2. We will not give fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, though we see the decay of creation around us, though we see the horrors of even what creation can bring in a hurricane or tornado or storm, We know that, yes, even in all these things, God is in control, a theme that you see over and over again throughout the scriptures and especially the Psalms, that God is in control even over creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 95, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are in his hands also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Fundamentally, God is a creator God. He has made all things. And now, as Paul says in Colossians, he is sustaining all things. He didn't just wind it up and let it go as creation to do its thing, but he created everything around us and he is still intimately involved in all of creation. Now, the problem with us living in Dallas, Texas is there's little creation for us to actually interact with. Most of what we are surrounded with, we made. All right, the buildings that we have created, the city that we have built, you have to leave, in many ways, the city limits in order to interact with the creation that God has made. And I would argue to a, a subpart of silence and stillness is also that perhaps for us, because of where we live, we might need to cultivate the discipline of just going outside. Why does that matter? Well, the the church fathers believed that we could actually know God by surveying all that he has made. They called it the book of nature, right? Or in, in theological terms, we call it general revelation. That God has revealed himself in his creation. Now, where did the church fathers get that? Did they make it up? No, it's straight out of the Bible. Paul says in Romans 1 that he has revealed himself and what he has made. Therefore, no man has excuse. Do you see God in creation? Do you take the time to do that? Why does that matter? Well, If God is in control of the universe, surely he could be in control of your life as well. And that is good news. Let me give you an example of this very quickly, and we'll move on. I don't know if you you are prone to documentaries. I can be uh, when I'm bored and irritable and discontent, right? So um, then I go and watch a random documentary on Netflix. 
And uh, one in particular I came across um, when I was bored irritable and discontent on my in-law's house over one, uh, God, this is recorded, isn't it? Um, it? It was about the Higgs boson. You know about the Higgs boson? It's a so-called God particle. If you remember, you've been a part of DFW for many years, you know, back in the uh, early 90s in Waxahachie, Texas, of all places. I hope no one's from Waxahachie. We used to play them in football when I was a kid. In Waxahachie, there, Waxahachie, you said Waxahachie, I said Waxahachie. Let's, you know, okay. We're all, it's fun. The, um, what was called the superconducting super collider. You know what I'm talking about? Where they were going to um, try to get down to the smallest particles uh, that we know exist in the universe. And of course, it ran out of funding and got cut. Well, they actually built the thing over in Switzerland, on the border of France and Switzerland. Okay, so th though we have this kind of shell of a place down south, in Texas of all places, on the border of France and Switzerland, they've built the thing, the Large Hadron Collider. Okay, with the goal of trying to get down to the most elemental particles of the universe specifically what's known as the Higgs boson, the God particle, right? the thing that everything came from. And there was so much speculation what would happen if they were to discover it, the world would end, or, or a black hole would suddenly just happen and the whole earth would get swallowed up, or, or religious types and scholars were, were afraid that this would disprove the existence of God anyway. So this documentary goes into, they found it, okay? They discovered it back in 2012. And it goes into the drama of trying to, one, get this thing to work, this device, but all of the theory that went in behind this. So not to bore you, but this is why I think this is important, because this is incredible to me. All right. Basically, there are two theories out there about how the universe works. One is called supersymmetry. In other words, that there is so much order and design to the universe that mathematically, uh, with physics, you can actually chart how the universe was put together at the smallest level of atoms and particles. Okay, that's one. The other, other theory is called chaos, right? Chaos theory, which has led to the idea of what's called the multiverse. Okay, I know now you have all glazed out, but this is, this is amazing to me. So these physicists think that, well, it's all just random. It's just random, and we, are, we happen to be here because just randomly all of things has happened, just, and here we are, okay? So the idea is, well, if we can discover the Higgs boson, then you could prove once and for all, is there order to the universe, or is everything just random? Okay, now you're, now you're hooked into it again, aren't you? Maybe we can prove this. How will they prove it? Well, how much does this little particle weigh, okay? If it weighs 115, there's order in the universe. If it weighs 140, it's chaos wow, well, we really need to find this thing. You want to guess what it weighed? 125, right in the middle. <laughs> Here's why I love that. Because God is in control, not just of order, but also over chaos. He's in control of all things. And if it showed that there was chaos, it would no less disprove God exists as if there were order. Yes, we see his handiwork in the order of things, in the way that cells are put together or the human body, but I would also submit to you, we see his handiwork and his control even over the chaos. How do we know that? Genesis 1, because God was there 
hovering over the chaos of the deep. He is in control in the order of creation and even over chaos itself. Okay, second thing, we'll speed up a little bit. This matters because it's in control even over the smallest little detail. Yes, in creation, but also in your life, even in our city. Even in our city. Look at verse 4. The psalmist goes on, verse 4, he says, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. One of the themes we looked at, if you were with us, when we studied the book of Daniel, is that around all of the earthly kingdoms that we build, God is sovereign even in those things, even over rulers that do not know him, even over rulers that work against him, God is even sovereign over them as well. He is in control of all things. And here we see this theme coming out in um, the city itself, right? The places that we live, the cities that we build, that we establish, the fortresses that we make, Right, Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Look, we can build whatever we want. We can spend uh, millions and billions of dollars, our resources, right? our best city planning. And all it takes is God to just utter a word, a voice, and all of it is going to melt. Right? He is in control over all things. And he gives us a vision of this city, the city of God. And he says there's a river that flows through it. Now, especially in ancient days, although this is true in cities today, typically you would see cities built along rivers, right, if they're not on the ocean, around rivers. Why would it be important? Even if they're on the ocean, you need a river. Why does that matter? As it turns out, water's important. Water's incredibly important for our flourishing, for our livelihood, and especially in those days, you need fresh water. You need fresh water. It was a source of life. And all the better if it went straight through the middle of your city. Why would that matter? Well, in those days, cities were walled. They were, um, had fortress around them. If you had to leave the walls of your city to go get fresh water, suddenly you were exposed right, to attack. But if the river goes straight down the middle, well, you never have to leave the walls of your city. Right? There is life, there is flourishing, there is even safety in this river going straight down the middle of the city. There's a river, he says, that makes glad, right? The streams make glad the city of God. It's a vision, a vision of a city that is to come. If you're with us during the Extend campaign, you heard us talk a lot about seeking a new city, it's still very much the forefront as we look at what the extended vision means for us as a church, that we have to seek after a new city. What does that mean? Well, it means that first and foremost, we have to recognize there is a new city that is to come, a heavenly city, New Jerusalem, the city of God, that God is one day going to restore all things and make all things new. It's a promise that Revelation 21 gives us. But that means something for our city here and now. Not that we should abandon our city here to say, look, it's all going to burn up anyways. But it means that, look, if this is where we're, we're headed to a restored city, the city of God, then doesn't God care about our city here and now? And the answer is yes. 
He cares deeply about our city because our city is filled with people, people who do not yet know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if he cares about subatomic particles and the way that the earth was formed and the universe came into existence, surely he also cares about the smallest detail about every aspect of the city that we live in. There is no detail too small for him So as you leave this place and go work in our city, ask yourself, is there no thing too small for him? Or do you think, no, it's just the big stuff. Or does he care? Does he care about our city? Where do you see him care about our city? There is a city that is to come, the city of God, where he has sent streams of water. Brothers, he has sent a stream of living water to our city right here and right now stream of litter water offered by Jesus himself, right? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is our call to bring safety and flourishing to the city that we dwell in. And we do that until that new city is to come. Okay, lastly, what is he in control over? The last thing I want to look at, he's in control over conflict. He's in control over conflict. Verse 8. Verse 8, the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease. To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He's in control over conflict. For the psalmist, he's seeing it very plainly in his own life that, look, we're surrounded by war, by battle, by, by literal conflict. Nation fighting against nation, and God has the power to make a war stop. He has the power to control an army or to break the power of another army, right? He has the power to be in control of even these things, then surely he can be in control of every little conflict that we face. So let me ask you this. What wars, what battles do you face every single day? Where is there conflict in your life? Because here's the kicker. Go back to being irritable and discontent. Nine times out of ten, we tend to avoid these conflicts. But we hide in the strangest of places. Let me give you an example. I'll answer that question for you. Where is conflict in my life? Where is the most battle in my life? Well, for me, it's actually not found at work. Now, don't get me wrong. There's enough conflict here in our church. (laughs) But let me be honest for a second, and I know this is being recorded, but she, she knows this is true. I feel more out of control when I'm at home. Now, I have a great marriage. I love my wife. My wife owes me. But because I love her, look, I care about her more than I care about you people. I love you too. I love her more, which makes it matter more. Which means when there's conflict there, oh, I don't like that. And I want to be in control. And I want to fix it. And if it's hard enough to not have conflict with my wife, I have three daughters. And they're just little right now. It's about to get crazy in 10 years. Some of you guys who have daughters know, and I need you to come help me. Tell me what to do. And, you, and the joke might be, well, and I, I did this. When my third daughter was born, I was like, look, I'm either going to redo my electric guitar 
or I'm going to go get a fly fishing rig. Why? Because I don't want to be around any of that. We tend to avoid conflict in the most meaningful places in our life. One of the ways we can do that is to hide in our calendar, to hide in our busyness, to hide on a phone, or to get lost in something that we feel like we can control. This is why all of this leads to really the, the theme verse of Psalm 46, Psalm 10, or verse 10, Psalm 46, verse 10. He says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, look, I've, I'm in control over all of creation. And then Selah, stop, pay attention, listen to that. I'm in control over all creation. Look, I'm in control over the city itself, even the city that is to come, Stop and listen to that. Look, I'm in control even over war and conflict. Stop and listen to that. Look, be still. Stop striving. Stop trying to work it out on your own. Stop trying to busy yourself. Be still and know that I am Lord. I am God over everything. You are not in control. And that's good news. Because God is and he loves you, and he loves you, and he is working all things for the joy of his people. Ultimately, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. So what does this look like for us? What does this look like for us? With many of these psalms, particularly when they're centered around the idea of conflict or trouble, we try to figure out, well, what was the historical occasion? We're not so sure about Psalm 46, but we have an idea. We have an idea because there's some similarities in what's being talked about and because of the centrality of one particular event for the people of Israel, and that was the Exodus. It was the moment when they saw God break in and redeem them from slavery. And Exodus 14 tells the story that right after Pharaoh lets people, his, you know, the people of Israel go, he has second thoughts, right? Or maybe he never had those thoughts to begin with. He was always this intention, but he chases them. And he sends out his armies, right, chariots, after the people of Israel. And so before they even get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army, if you can imagine, trained on horses. They're making ground very quickly on a bunch of tired and weary travelers. And the people of Israel look back and they say, Moses, what have you done? You've led us out of slavery only to die in the wilderness. What will we do? What are we going to do? And I want you to hear what Moses says. Verse 13, Exodus 14, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Listen to this. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Stop complaining. Stop questioning. Stop your striving. Stop worrying. Stop fearing. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Brothers, we need to cultivate a discipline of silence, of stillness before our God. To be still 
and to know that he is God. Why? It's not, no, be still and be silent. Uh, do some breathing exercises. Do some stretches, and now you're good. No, it's be still so that you can know God. It's be still so that you can actually hear his voice. What does this look like? Well, it looks like reading the word of God without an agenda. Actually taking the time in your prayer life. This is one of your questions once you wrestle at your table. What would happen if you were actually silent in your prayer life? Because look, if you're not, what are you doing? What kind of conversation are you having with somebody if you're the one talking all the time? It's very one-sided. Do you take the time to actually be still and be silent to hear his voice? How do we hear his voice? He's given us his voice right here in his word. Psalm 46 gives us the model. God is in control over all creation. Selah, stop and listen. Listen. Don't move on. Don't fill your mind with drabble. Don't check your email. Don't get lost in your calendar. Don't fill your schedule so you just have to move on to the next thing. No, stop. Linger. Be still. Be silent and hear the voice of God. Hear his voice for you this morning through Moses' own words. Fear not. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we recognize that this particular discipline is difficult for us for so many reasons. And it's probably not enough just to confess it's hard for us practically. But I think all of us this morning as we wrestle with these things will recognize that it's also hard for us because deep down in our souls, we don't want to be exposed as the vulnerable, dependent, out-of-control men that we truly are. So, Father, I pray that as we start to be honest with that, that we not just conf con confront our lack of control, but that we would be graciously confronted with your control over all things. And that we would see that that is good news, that there is nothing to fear. We only need to be silent and still. That we'd stop our striving, stop our activity, and to see that you are at work. May we see your work in and through us this morning as we go to work our own occupations. May you see your work, your handiwork, and our labors. As we look up at the night sky tonight, may we see your handiwork even in creation itself. And Father, may you fill us with awe and wonder over these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.